This Cap Times podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Learn more at exactsciences.com. It's been 10 years since Governor Scott Walker introduced a piece of legislation that would effectively eliminate collective bargaining for public employees in Wisconsin. Walker said he dropped the bomb when he introduced Act 10, and the fallout that resulted drove deep political divisions into the state. I'm Jesse Apoyan, and this is Wedge Issues, a Cap Times podcast about government and politics in Wisconsin. For the next few weeks, I'll be handing the podcast over for a series of episodes reflecting on the legacy of Act 10. Cap Times politics reporter Brianna Riley and education reporter Scott Gerard will tell that story through a series of interviews. Today, we start with Mike Wagner, a UW-Madison journalism professor who talked with Brianna and Scott about how political attitudes and behaviors are affected by the ways in which information flows across the state. The first few minutes of this recording were cut off, so we, we kind of jump in mid-conversation. But from here, I will let Brianna and Scott take it over. Starting an American band, songs about love city don't understand, so there are just differences in, in where people are, are uh, deciding to learn about affairs of the day. And stereotypically, I think folks might, might, might wonder if it's rural Wisconsinites who are doing more listening to talk radio, uh, especially conservative talk. There, there are over 200 hours a day of available conservative talk radio in Wisconsin, given all of the radio stations and how many broadcast a conservative talk each day, but it's suburban Wisconsin actually that listens to conservative talk radio more than any place else. Um, local television news tends to be number one, but the places that are the most informed tend to use local newspapers the most for their information. And so there are just divisions about where people get their news and how informed they are. Um, and some of that is related to things that we might care about in, in a democracy, like who responds to a fact check by updating their attitudes and believing the truth, or who is more or less prone to share conspiratorial ideas. And we found that how people get their information has been really related to those things. Um, we've also just found, you know, race is still a dividing line uh, in, in Wisconsin um, on, on a variety of issues. Although the way that interacts with um, the local political scene matters as well. And so in, in a piece we recently um, shared with the Washington Post, um, which, which again was led up by another graduate student, um, Janice Lee, uh, found that the counties where Joe Biden did better have higher support for Black Lives Matter than counties where Joe Biden did worse. But they also um, are more likely to favor policies that would spin out of support for Black Lives Matter, um, such as uh, reducing police budgets, uh, reforming the police, and that sort of thing. And so where you live matters, where you get your information matters, how those things interact uh, matter. And and it's it's been really fascinating to watch these things kind of change uh, over the last decade when in 2011 and 2012, conservatives were really dominating the information ecology uh, in our state. And now I wouldn't say it's flipped, but it's much more competitive um, than, than it was a decade ago. Those are really interesting findings and conclusions. Um, I, I sort of want to get back to something that we talked about 
and alluded to a little bit before in this discussion, um, so much of the response to the legislation played out in Madison, but the fallout included, you know, recall elections for Governor Scott Walker and state senators around Wisconsin. How did those little pieces, I mean, the, the, the parts of Act 10 that continued well past 2011, affect the long-term perception of the fight over that legislation? I think one thing that's happened is that we are more quick to interpret anything related to politics as a fight and as a contentious fight than we might have been before Act 10. Like, it's not like Democrats and Republicans used to hold hands and sing songs of peace, right? You know, they're, they've always hotly debated, uh, you know, issues of the day, um, sometimes in a more polarized environment, sometimes in a less polarized environment. But since Act 10, one thing that's changed is battle lines seem to be drawn much more starkly and, and much more clearly. And what's happened kind of at that same time was the, the redistricting cycle that we came through right before that period really uh, took off in earnest was one that really gave Republicans a, an enormous advantage. Uh, and, and so we see that continuing um, to affect politics even a decade later, right? Uh, um, there's one kind of way scholars think about redistricting um, and they, uh, in terms of kind of what you might think of as a, an efficiency gap, right? So if in a perfect world, and, and we've actually asked Wisconsinites this in surveys, Wisconsinites by this, almost seven out of 10, tend to agree that the party that gets the most votes should have the most seats in the legislature, right? So that's sort of how, how most people approach thinking about what fair representation might look like. But in Wisconsin, we've had elections where 60% of the votes went to Democrats and 40% of the legislative seats went to Democrats. And so that, that difference is something researchers who study redistricting have studied um, since we've had redistricting. And what they found is that Wisconsin's current maps are among the 10, 10 worst in terms of the gap between who gets the most votes and how many seats they get in the legislature. It's one of the 10 worst in the history of the Republic, not just in Wisconsin's history, but in all of our states over the whole course of American history. And so we have a really unique difference in our state of who's representing majorities in terms of lawmaking versus who's representing majorities uh, in terms of, of voting. Now, another side to this is a lot of these districts are not terribly competitive, right? And so it could be that if districts were more competitive, more Republicans would show up and they, maybe they're not so keen to vote in districts where they know they're going to lose. Um, and just as Democrats might not be so keen to vote in districts where they know that their side is going to lose. And so it could be that a, a general lack of competitiveness in a lot of districts is driving down voter turnout. But I th would say a counter argument to that point um, is that Wisconsin has pretty high voter turnout, especially compared to all of the other states in the union. And so we're, we're, we're more closer to the ceiling than the floor in terms of who shows up to vote. And we still have this large gap in terms of um, overall representation. Speaking of all of the other states in the union, uh, how did Act 10 impact beyond Wisconsin's state lines? Did, did other states that were under Republican control around then take cues from the GOP's effort here? Well, certainly. Um, my colleague Lou Friedland has written about this and, and presented around, uh, around the state about these kinds of issues uh, as, as well. But it, it's the case that 
Wisconsin has been a laboratory for um, other Republican majority legislatures around the country for a host of issues, um, including um, issues related to, um, you know, dealing with organized labor and trying to eliminate uh, public organized uh, public organized labor. And that's happened uh, or, or been attempted in, in a number of states. And it's also the case that other things the uh, legislature uh, has done in the last decade um, have also been attempted in other states. And so, you know, speaking as a university professor a few years ago, uh, the, the legislature altered um, the way tenure was enshrined in, in state law. And other states followed the lead directly pointing to Wisconsin. Iowa lawmakers in particular were saying, you know, this is what's happened. This is what they're doing in Wisconsin, and we want to do that same thing. And so what what's happened legislatively in Wisconsin has served as as an example um, that many uh, states that have had uh, Republican control of the legislature uh, ha has tried to follow. Um, and the same uh, also would be true of uh, some voter ID laws uh, that have uh, been passed uh, in recent years. Wisconsin wasn't the leader in passing voter ID in the first place, but they sort of re-energized a second wave of voter ID laws that that came um, after, after Wisconsin's did as well. And so there's been a lot of ways that what's happened in Wisconsin has mattered for other state GOP um, uh, controlled legislatures. But it's also mattered in that a lot of the people who were behind some of these changes really developed national voices. Governor Walker was an early front runner for the 2016 Republican nomination until Donald Trump got into the race. Um, and, and, said, and he was, you know, you know, one of the people who folks thought was a, a really serious uh, candidate for that position. Um, Four years earlier, Paul Ryan was, you know, the number two on the national ticket on the Republican side. After the 2016 election, Reince Priebus from Wisconsin became Donald Trump's first chief of staff. And so the, there was a, a recognition that what had happened in Wisconsin was something that, that Republicans wanted to scale up and do nationally. And more and more uh, Wisconsin lawmakers got those national uh, voices and those, those seats at national power over the course of the decade as well. Right, exactly. I mean, Paul Ryan was House Speaker. There's a lot of examples to point to. Um, it's sort of going on with this nationalization theme. There has been a, just a general nationalization of politics over the past decade. How has that affected the way that we perceive polarization in Wisconsin? And, and what's the media's role in that? That's a great question. Um, that's that's something that's near and dear uh, to our hearts as we study Wisconsin politics. The I would say the dominant thesis to get egg heady about it for a second in political science is that American politics has become nationalized. And we've gone from what uh, spe the Speaker of the House and the Reagan era Tip O'Neill would say all politics is local to now an increasing nationalization uh, of US politics. But Wisconsin, we find, has not quite followed that trend in, in the same way that maybe some other states have. And, and part of it is, 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 is that there's an asymmetry between the two parties. Um, as we do analyses of, for example, the, the social media networks of Wisconsinites uh, and uh, in, in Wisconsin politics, um, we have found pretty big differences between where the locus of power is in the conservative social media sphere in Wisconsin as compared to where it is uh, in the national, or I'm sorry, in the, in the democratic um, sphere uh, in, in, in Wisconsin, the liberal sphere. And so we found that um, in Wisconsin, 
the center of the kind of the Twitter network uh, in 2012, right around that time, just after Act 10 and, and during the recall, was Charlie Sykes, the, the conservative radio talk show host uh, in Milwaukee. And then we found, you know, Paul Ryan was was a big player, but wasn't quite in the center because he was more nationalized. And there were there were bridges between national politics and, and state politics, but really Wisconsin conversation about politics flowed through Charlie Sykes and Vicki McKenna and other conservative talk hosts and local state Republican lawmakers. Whereas on the left, um, most of the figures that were central were national figures, like Barack Obama and that, and that, and that sort of thing. The, the only really um, figure that was local and had a large performance in terms of flowing conversation about politics was actually John Nichols uh, of the Cap Times. But of course, a lot of that flowed from his work in The Nation, you know, the, the Nation magazine, which is a national magazine. And so there just weren't local liberal voices that were dominating conversation about politics on, on social media. And, in the, and they were more nationalized, whereas the Republicans in the state were far more localized. The other thing that we've learned through part of the interviews that we've done with uh, people who run political campaigns in the state is that the Republican party was far more interested in getting on local television than the democratic party was. And, and so Republican campaign staffers would push to try to get, you know, take, maybe take a plane to a couple different places in the state so that they were making sure they would land in time for folks to get on the noon TV broadcast in one place and then get on the five and the six in another place and, and really put a premium on local TV, which is the most popular source uh, for information about politics in the state, whereas Democrats were not playing that same kind of local game in, in the same way. Now, over the last couple of years, that started to change a bit. I think since Ben Wickler's become the uh, chair of the uh, Democratic Party, um, there's a, there are way more local social voices, social media voices in Wisconsin that are that are where different conversations about immigration, healthcare, uh, Foxconn are, are, are flowing in the ways that were really dominated by local Republicans and national Democrats before. And now it's becoming a little bit more of an even local playing field. But but it's it's definitely the case that Wisconsin is not like other states in terms of its politics being more more localized than than politics in some other places where, where it's more nationalized. But it's also the case that Wisconsin is more polarized. And so um, we, uh, in 2018 and 2020, studied Wisconsin um, with a, a pre and post election survey. But then we also surveyed people in, Wisconsin, or in uh, Ohio, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Minnesota, and Georgia. So we picked other swing states and we would ask folks questions about how they evaluated the president, how they evaluated different political institutions like Congress and the Supreme Court, but also the police, um, you know, your, your state's Department of Natural Resources, um, religious leaders, you know, just lots of different kinds of social and political institutions. And the evaluations were more divided in Wisconsin than the other states on virtually everything, whether it was their attitudes about local reporters or their attitudes about religious leaders or the president. Wisconsinites attitudes were more divided than the folks in these other states. And so there's, there's something local happening, but there's also something more contentious happening here. Those are some really fascinating statistics. Thank you for sharing. You mentioned during that answer and a bit earlier uh, about Charlie Sykes, talk radio in general. Can, and this is actually an audience question, so thank you uh, to the audience member who asked right. it. Uh, 
Can you expand a bit more on the effect of talk radio on the political debate during Act 10? And how has its influence changed since then, if it has? One thing that happened during Act 10 is, is right, conservative talk radio has been a successful economic project, whereas attempts at liberal talk radio have been far less successful, to put it mildly, right? And so there's just a better market for conservative talk than there is for liberal talk. And in Wisconsin, where, again, about 200 hours a day of conservative talk are available, there was a real opportunity for folks to advance their case about Act 10, and one thing we learned in uh, the more qualitative interviews that we did with with folks like Charlie Sykes, but another uh, radio hosts, also with um, reporters who were covering politics at that time, and also um, people who were kind of managing political campaigns, was that there was a bunch of a lot of forethought, a lot of planning went into how the messaging about Act Ten would be done. And so there, and I think even even some of this I think is actually available in some of the um, the public record stuff that came out with the the John Doe investigations, but there were, um, you know, detailed conversations between Governor Walker and and say Charlie Sykes about what kinds of messages seem to be playing the best on talk radio and and what what the the big advantage rate talk radio hosts have over politicians is that they get instant feedback from their audience every day, right? They immediately know are the arguments that they're making landing and are callers coming in and advancing those and, and building on those, or are they being combative, right? And Charlie Sykes really learned this when he became an, when he was a never Trumper, right? When he didn't change his tune on Donald Trump, his audience turned on him. And so radio hosts get a, a, a keen sense of what their audience is thinking. And they could share that with lawmakers who were, working to try to find arguments that would be persuasive to get people fired up and energized and supportive of, of what uh, the state government was trying to do in, in the in the majorities about Act 10. And so I think, you know, talk radio played a, a huge role in that and, and still a, a, an incredibly important role, uh, plays a big role uh, in Wisconsin politics today, both in terms of helping those politicians craft the message of the day, but also in terms of reining in kind of co-partisan. So in the case of Wisconsin, conservative talk radio can play the role of finding the moderate Republican um, who might be moving away from what the majority of the party might want and going after them on the radio, right? Which is, we have some examples of that in some of the interviews that we've done, but also in interviews we've done um, with, with people around the state. So in addition to the thousands we've done, you know, web surveys of, we've done in-depth interviews with about 400 people around or all around the state. And one thing we've learned is that, you know, when talk radio um, focuses their attention on on someone, people begin to, to know way more about that person, right? Most people are not spending their time thinking about their state assembly person and their state senator, right? But if the radio is talking about that person and saying, this person is preventing our side from getting what we want, that, that can be a big deal. Uh, few, uh, quite a few questions from the audience coming in. I'm going to address one right now. Um, this person had noted that they had read print coverage in the Wisconsin State Journal about, you know, sort of commemorating this anniversary. Um, and, and one thing that we touched on a little bit in this conversation, but really didn't expand upon, was the fact that um, obviously factoring into this debate over this legislation um, was the impact it would have on the political power, the finances, um, the ability of unions to continue backing Democratic, um, to, you know, be a force in Democratic politics. 
politics. Was that one of the aims of the legislation? And can you talk a little bit about, about that impact? It's definitely been one of the impacts of the legislation. And so as we look at the kind of finance networks of campaigns in Wisconsin, whether they're at the state assembly or state senate level. Um, one of my undergraduate uh, students a few years ago, uh, Ross Dulkey, wrote his undergraduate thesis about um, campaign finance funding networks in the state for judicial elections, right? Because one of the unique things you know, about us is we have these competitive elections to be on the, on the state Supreme Court. And he's found that these have gotten increasingly partisan over time. And the role and power of labor money has decreased over time. And over time here is defined as from 2010 to 2018. And so we've seen these changes in terms of the, the campaign finance muscle of, of the labor movement. Um, but it's not that, um, you know, labor unions have, have stopped giving to Democrats. That, that's not what they've done. They, just, they have less resources um, than they did before um, to, to be able to, to, to do that kind of giving. And, and, then, and it's certainly played a role in um, how campaigns uh, are, are funded um, in our state. And we found that at the state assembly and state Senate level, and also um, to a slightly lesser extent uh, for statewide races for say the US Senate or, or a, a governor's race. Um, but we definitely have found that the, the zenith of the muscle that organized labor had from a finance perspective in the Democratic Party is, is, not, is not what it was. Um, from a volunteer perspective, it's still very important. From a political mobilization perspective, it's still critical as well. Um, and, it, and it's, of course, important from the, fi from the fundraising perspective, but it's just not, it's not eating up as much of a piece of the pie as it, as it used to, it seems. You know, thinking back to pre-2011, obviously, there have been other periods of contentious politics. Uh, how does what you've studied in the last 10 years at, at sort of the fallout of Act 10 compare to other times in the state and national history of contentious politics? Well, you know, it's we've always had contentious politics, right, both nationally and, and in our state. Politics is contentious, right? Because people are organizing usually in two parties around competition for scarce resources and how to allocate them. And so so it's not peculiar that politics is contentious. Um, but I think that the, the contentious nature of politics in many periods of our history have also come with a higher level of trust in our political institutions, uh, especially the judiciary. Um, but also uh, a greater level of trust in um, the ability of, of folks to be able to, to make compromises and, and just overall support in the electorate for compromise uh, seems to have been higher uh, in the past uh, than it was, I think, in the, at the height of the contention um, around Act 10 and in the couple of years that, that followed. And so some of those things were unique, right? When we ask people, is it better for political leaders to strike a compromise even if they don't get everything that they want, or is it better to stick to their principles even if they would get nothing? Um, we've gone from you know maybe 70 or 80% of people saying let's compromise to that being more of a 50-50 question. Um, and also that it, it uh, who says compromise and who says stick to your principles also varies based upon which side has the legislative majority or which side has the power. And so if we, when we ask that question about 
the United States Congress today. Now it's Democrats saying, stick to your principles, don't compromise, pass the largest you know bill you can for COVID relief, right? And and now Democrats or Republicans at the national level are saying, oh, well, wait, hold on a second, Let, let's compromise here and see if we can't you know work that out. Whereas if you ask that question at the state level in Wisconsin, you would see the reverse and we'll say Republicans saying, you know, we have the majorities in the legislature. Let's let's not let us not compromise that majority, especially when they had a unified government with um, the, the governor's uh, the governor's ship as well. Yeah, that's you know, what, what I was curious uh, about is how does the state of divided government sort of impact that? Obviously, we have Republican majorities right now. But we have a Democrat mm-hmm. Democratic executive. Does that does that change people's perception of whether there should be compromise or not? We were really interested in that in, in 2018. And so we in our um, in our survey of about 2000 Wisconsinites, we also ran an experiment where we asked people to imagine um, if and then we randomly assigned people to one of four categories. Either Donald Trump was seeking a compromise, Scott Walker was seeking a compromise, Barack Obama was seeking a compromise, or Tony Evers was seeking a compromise. So this is 2018 when um, you know Trump has been president for two years, but Obama had just been in the White House and the, the governor's race in Wisconsin was, you know, that was the big race. And so we ask people, okay, imagine one of these people has called for a political compromise on an issue that's important to you. What would you think their motivation would be? And then we gave them a bunch of different options, you know, things like um, they're seeking the compromise because they can't, they can't, they can't win without it. Like they, they have to compromise to get something. They're seeking the compromise to increase their own power. They're seeking the compromise um, because they know that they've lost. They're seeking the compromise because they're genuinely interested in bipartisan legislation. And we found um, that people tended to think that, and again, this was before Tony Evers became governor and things always change once a person's in a job. Uh, no one's as popular as the person you're trying to get to run for an office, right? But 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 at that time, um, Tony Evers of those four was viewed to have the purest of intention when compromising with the other side. And, and people tended to view uh, um, both President Trump, uh, President Obama, and Governor Walker as compromising for political reasons or to, to feather their own nest or to um, make up for the fact that they were going to lose anyway. Um, whereas people tended to think, you know, in, in, that, in that same experiment that, that, that uh, then candidate Evers would be trying to compromise because he was more interested in it. And of course, that was more indicative of, of a lot of the communication that he, you know, engaged in on the campaign trail, you know, kind of campaigning as a let's cool, you know, tempers and that, and that sort of thing. But of course, once you become governor, you know, that changes. And I think if we ran that experiment again today, I don't think we'd see as many, especially as many Republicans thinking that that uh, attempt to compromise from Governor Evers was was uh, was uh, a virtuous attempt. Thanks for talking about all that and, and tying it so well to what we're seeing today. Um, sort of go, uh, I guess, looking into the future now, since we've been looking into the past for, for most of this conversation, how long do you see Act 10 being parlance in Wisconsin politics? Will families still be talking, or I guess maybe not talking about it 20 years from now? I think that I think 20 years from now, I think it'll still be something that people who follow politics in Wisconsin will, will know about and will know what it is. It, it's an issue that was so central in creating and expanding this key fault line that we have in, in the politics of our state right now. I mean, I mean, not to, to beat a dead horse, but, you know, 50% of people told us in 2018 and 2020, they'd stop talking to somebody about politics because of Act 10. And that was eight years, you know, nine years later. Um, and 
and a quarter of, of folks have said they've, they've ended a friendship or family relationship. Um, one of the people, uh, one of our students interviewed, um, I think in the northeastern part of the state, um, said uh, something like, well, I've got the cooties real bad because I don't like Scott Walker and my brother does and we haven't talked in years. And we're seeing that sort of thing um, more more than we have for other for other kinds of political issues, even other issues that are really contentious about, you know, issues about um, whether abortion should be legal or who should have the right to marry or capital punishment or defunding the police. These are all really contentious issues. The ones that seem to be breaking apart social relationships in Wisconsin seems to be more tied to, to Act 10 and, and the recall and um, the, the fallout of the politics of that. And, and my, my colleague uh, and collaborator, uh, Kathy Kramer, chronicled a lot of this in her great book, uh, The Politics of Resentment, um, that also looks at the rise of, of Governor Walker. And one thing she would find, so Kathy has this great method where she'll travel around the state, find out where people get together in normal times. Right now, it would be really hard to do Kathy's work because no one's getting together to, to talk politics. But, but when people did that, she would go to communities and say, you know, where do people go? Do they, they go to the Perkins or the gas station or the hy V or where? And she should go to those places and invite herself, you know, into conversations and, and people, because she's such a great, warm person, you know, let her, you know, observe these conversations and ask them questions. And she would return to the same places over and over and over. And one thing she would notice as we got farther from Act 10 and into the recall was that sometimes some of the regulars weren't showing up and she would say, oh, well, where's, where's George or, or whoever? And they would say, oh, well, you know, he's married to a teacher. And so they're on the other side of, of, of the recall. And so he doesn't come anymore. And so these groups of people who would, you know, get together and shoot the breeze and give each other a hard time and, you know, and, and just be friends, you know, would, would um, have some of these social relationships fall apart over this particular this particular law, Act 10. And, and so that seems to be a pretty durable divide. Um, in 2020, we asked people in, in the survey we did in Wisconsin, because we've asked, of course, all these questions about if you stop talking to somebody. We, we also thought, well, maybe we should see, are people trying to repair relationships? And so we, we asked, you know, um, have you tried to restart a relationship that you'd stopped um, you know, earlier. And, and that's, that's not very many people who, who've done that. And, and the people who have, interestingly, seem to be the people who have the most diverse information diets already. It's, it's the liberals who watch some Fox. It's the conservatives who watch some MSNBC. It's the people who talk to folks who are of a known different political persuasion than them that are the ones trying to repair relationships. It's, it's, not, the, it's not those of us living in the filter bubbles where the news tells us that we're right and the other side is wrong and evil and dangerous and must be stopped at all costs. Th th those folks are not not out there seeking to um, to rebuild any uh, broken relationships. Speaking of filter bubbles, um, so uh, this is another audience question, uh, but uh, an audience member wants to know what was social media like in 2011? You know, what, what was its impact at that time? It was a little newer, right? And, and so, it was, and, and still in many ways is, is dominated by a pretty small group of people with, with the social media that's easiest to study, right? Like we would love to be able to know what people are doing on Facebook, but Facebook's terms of service, quite rightly, I think, you know, prevent, you know, us from, from 
really observing what people are doing on Facebook without their consent, which is, I think, you know, the ethically right thing to do. Whereas Twitter is a public forum. Twitter is a, I'm on Twitter and I'm saying these things publicly. Whereas Facebook, you're picking your friends and keeping your network more controlled. And so from what we can tell by what we can see, so in places like Twitter, um, social media uh, plays a really big role um, in influencing not only conversation on social media, but driving, uh, driving news coverage, driving what politicians say or, or when they say particular things. And so we've done some pretty um, in-depth uh, analyses. So we, we've taken all these tweets that originate in Wisconsin uh, about local and national political issues. And so one example of that is the healthcare issue, right? And so one thing we found, Wisconsin's national conservative elite, so people who are Wisconsin politicians and conservative, but have a national voice. So so now we would put Governor Walker in that category because he's not a state politician, but has a more of a national voice. Paul Ryan, your Republican uh, representatives in Congress, Ron Johnson, the Senator Republican, you know, those folks have, have a big role in driving general discourse on Twitter but also influence what local liberal actors in Wisconsin say on social media, um, what local conservative actors in Wisconsin say on social media. But if you look, conservative talk radio has a little bit of a relationship to what Wisconsin politicians say. Conservative talk radio affects what local conservative politicians say. It also influences what national elites are responding to uh, on social media. And so we see this this kind of relationship. And then um, that's with healthcare. This podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences. Join the Madison-based team working to lead earlier cancer detection. Visit exactsciences.com to view the company's hundreds of open jobs. And so now this is a conversation about Foxconn, right? And so now liberals have more to say and liberal national news is influencing Twitter discourse. Local liberal actors are in conversation with conservative political actors at the national level. And so um, conservative talk radio is, is, is pushing more this category of Wisconsin local moderates, which is a lot of reporters, right? A lot of reporters are in that where they're not um, tweeting things that favor one side or another, but tweeting lots of political information um, that are also reflecting the contemporary debate. And so you have all these relationships and it's just a much, much denser network and the local relationships are so much more important on the Foxconn issue than on healthcare. And if I showed you immigration, it's even more sparse. And so immigration has really been a nationalized issue where we haven't seen much social media amongst Wisconsin liberal actors, Wisconsin conservative actors. And we look at the Foxconn issue, a much more local economic issue. And we just see it's being really driven by lots of things um, whether at the, at the mid, mid local level and at the Wisconsin leader level um, in in ways that are just kind of fundamentally different. So, so to say that there's a social media effect is not to say there's, there's not one, right? It's, it's by issue, it's by locale, it's by are people on the left or on the right even willing to engage in that particular issue? Uh, and one thing I would say, one general finding is that the right has been much more reactive and, 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 much, and has a more durable staying power on issues. And so the right is much more responsive to claims made on the left, and then they keep being responsive. And, and the left network hasn't tended to be 
as durable. We've especially found that um, on national issues related to mass shootings. And so when there are mass shootings, there's lots and lots of liberal Twitter for a few days, but conservative Twitter lasts for weeks and months. Another couple of audience questions we've gotten are about talk radio and local news. Um, so first, can you speak to the reach of these conservative talk radio hosts across the state? And then second, to piggyback off that, how does the, cons the consolidation of small newspapers influence the number of editorial perspectives that people see? These are both great questions. So the reach of talk radio is, is pretty wide. Um, even so, it's not as popular as local television news. It's not as popular even in most places around the state as national television news. Um, in, in Madison, newspaper readership is, is, is higher. Um, you know, and so there, there are, there, there's not a one-to-one -one relationship between, you know, talk radio dominates all, but it is important. It's not used as often, but those who use it are more politically engaged. Right, which makes sense, right? People who are choosing to listen to political talk radio care about politics, right? That's that's not super surprising. But when you keep returning to a source time and time again, that's telling you your side's right, the other side's wrong, the other side's dangerous, the other side's un-American, the other side must be stopped, you're on the side of purity and good. It becomes harder to want compromise, it becomes harder to trust the other side, it becomes harder to engage in the kinds of compromises that have to happen in, in uh, governments that are, you know, like our governments in the United States where there is, you know, there's a separation of powers. And so, so conservative talk radio's reach is not so large that it's dominating everything that's not but it, but it's it's reaching people who are deeply committed to politics and helping to push those folks to have slightly more extreme attitudes have more certainty about those attitudes and a, and and a, and a decreased willingness to compromise uh, with the other side um in terms of media consolidation that's played a big role right so the um the the role that Companies like uh, Gannett, for example, have, have played in kind of buying up some some papers uh, in, in our state um, tend to mean smaller newsrooms, um, which tends to mean less coverage about politics. Um, that tends to also mean that the coverage is more contentious. And so uh, research done by others, uh, most notably, I think, Johanna Dunaway at Texas A&M has found that when a big corporation takes over a, a local newspaper, the coverage becomes less focused on issues. It becomes uh, more likely to quote partisan extremists on either side of the aisle uh, in their coverage and pays less attention to issues in general. And so when large companies buy these, these kind of smaller newspapers, there are deep consequences to, um, to the kinds of uh, information people are exposed to. And then they're exposed to information that's telling them politics is more contentious because the people getting quoted are the more extreme lawmakers on either side, rather than maybe the average lawmaker uh, in, in each party. And so that also contributes to people's perceptions of polarization and people's perceptions of divides uh, directly affect their willingness to want to engage in, in things like compromise. At the same time, you have this really interesting an unfortunate thing happening to lots of really small local papers. I, I remember I gave a talk um, at, a, at a bowling alley uh, in Marathon County a couple of years ago, and maybe 50 or 60 people showed up on a weeknight to talk about, you know, partisan politics in, in the state and what we, what we knew about it. And one person um, in the crowd said, well, I know the right thing to do 
would be to subscribe to my local paper so that they can pay reporters to cover the issues in my community. But they they have so few reporters and they do so little local coverage that I don't subscribe to it, right? And so um, there's this chicken and egg problem happening um, with, with uh, news ecologies um, that are happening with really small papers and are also happening to more mid-sized ones that are getting bit, uh, bought up by these, these larger corporations. And it definitely, I think, limits uh, the editorial voice we see. Um, we've seen the editorial voice on the editorial page change in a lot of papers around the state where papers are less willing to endorse candidates um, on the editorial page um, for fear of, uh, I think, being branded as biased on their news pages. And, and, and so um, the editorial voices are, are narrower um, in a lot of these places than they used to be. Um, there's um, less room to talk local politics than there used to be. And, and clearly it matters, right? This is really, I'm kind of filibustering here, but this really nifty uh, experiment done by some folks at Louisiana State University um, where uh, they, had, they had done some research. And when we do some research on this too, about what uh, places that are called news deserts, which, are, which we define as counties without a local newspaper. Um, people, you know, news desert counties have people who, who vote more straight ticket, right? They, they're, they're more polarized in their voting behavior than folks who live in, in counties with uh, newspapers. And so uh, a newspaper out in California, an editor read this study and thought, well, let's see if we can find a way to get more local politics into our paper. And so for one month, we are not going to run any national opinion columnists. We're only going to solicit local voices for our opinion page. And and so the LSU researchers who had done that study then said, well, if you're going to do this, let's let's study it right as you do it. And so they uh, did a survey of people in the county where the newspaper was and then in the adjacent county that had a different local paper that kept the national voices in their paper. And what they found is that people were more interested in local politics um, when they could hear about it in, in their newspaper. And, and they were less polarized because they were hearing about more local issues, which tend to be things that bring people together more than they split them apart. And so just having more access to local had, had an effect of diminishing polarization. Whereas in the county that was doing the same old, same old, people actually were growing even more divided. And so local news matters and the local editorial voices matters. And not, not just to moderate, but, but to give other people voice uh, to contribute to, you know, contribute to the debate about the, uh, the major issues of the day. Yeah, and given all of the different media ecosystems that are out there, uh, this is another audience question. What do you think about the possibility of the fairness doctrine returning uh, to potentially combat misinformation that can spread in places like social media? Yeah, you know, I'm I'm not optimistic that the fairness doctrine is is, is going to return um, and require uh, a more balanced set of voices, um, you know, on the airwaves, for example. Um, it ter- you know, a lot of what we know about who is more likely to accept misinformation or or who is more likely to be helped by a fact check, you know, has a lot to do with our own individual factors and, and a little bit less to do. With, with the news in, in the first place. So one thing um, we've learned in research we've published is that people who are willing to admit they don't know something are way more likely to learn from news coverage than those who are certain about something uh, and wrong about it at the same time. So when people are confident that they know something that, that it turns out they don't know, learning about it in a fact check is not persuasive. Whereas folks who are willing to say, you know, I don't know the answer to this that's why we have reporters. They're the ones who, you know, who, who tend to be more likely to learn. 
We've also learned uh, in some research led by one of our former students, Jordan Foley, who's now a professor at Washington State University, is that people who rely on social media and just think, look, I don't need to subscribe to the paper, right? I, I don't need to watch the news. I, I, if it's important, news will find me. I'll see it on social media. And we all have experiences like, oh, I didn't know about that thing because I saw it on Facebook or I saw it on Twitter or wherever. But people who live their lives in that way are way more likely to think conspiratorially and share conspiracies in their social media feeds. And so the, the folks who are not making the effort to learn from the news, right? The, the, the people who are coming to a Cap Times talk on a Zoom 11 months into a pandemic are not the problem. Right? <laughs> it's, it's people who think social media uh, will, will, just, will just save me, um, have no way to discern or have less of a way, I should say, to discern effectively um, information that's credible versus information that's not. And we've all had the experience of seeing something in social media that made us feel good because it fit our point of view, but wasn't, but it didn't have the virtue of being true, right? And, and what's great about local newspapers, especially, but also, you know, local television is that they fact check their work. They have professional penalties, <laughs> you know, it hurts their careers when they report things that aren't true. They have to make public corrections when they're wrong. And I don't have to do that on Twitter if I say something that's not true. There's no consequence, really. And so sharing that stuff on social media and relying on social media to keep us informed um, is, 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 is one of the problems of, of how misinformation spreads so, so, so quickly and, and so enduringly. Thanks for the great shout out to our audience there. I really appreciate that. Um, I, we're running up on time. So I just want to sort of wrap up this discussion with one final question. When considering how to sort of repair the breakdown in social and family networks that have occurred here because of politics, particularly in the last 10 years, do you believe politicians, elites, the media and others can be part of that solution? And if so, how could that play out? I think so, right? I think politicians being willing to publicly share when they're not agreeing with the dominant position in their party is enormously effective at influencing people's attitudes. Uh, economists uh, call this costly talk, right? So cheap talk is the governor of Wisconsin, whoever it is saying, boy, I love the Packers. And, you know, the Packers got jobbed by the referees in the NFC championship game, right? That's cheap talk. Costly talk would be, you know, there were things that maybe we could have done better and because of our failures, we lost the game, right? That's costly talk where you're, you're admitting your side did something wrong. And when politicians do that, it has the effect of being perceived as more credible by, by the audience. And so when people are willing to admit when they disagree with their own side, that's really important. The other thing that's really uh, seems to be important, and my colleague Kathy Kramer does a lot of great work on this, is, is the importance of listening rather than saying, Politics is about me telling you why I'm right and you're wrong. <laughs> it's taking a step back and saying, share with me what you were thinking and why you think it um, is a much more effective strategy, not just to cooling temperatures, right? But, but at creating the durable kinds of relationships that won't break down when there's a contentious battle uh, that, that takes place in our state. Thanks so much for that great conversation. If you're interested in learning more about the political fallout of Act 10, please read my new Cap Times cover story. It published today and it's available in print or online. Thank you so much, Professor Wagner, for being here. Uh, this was a really wonderful conversation. Please don't forget about the rest of our uh, Act 10 anniversary coverage coming up over the next uh, few weeks. Be sure to stay tuned to captimes.com. We'll have 
uh, features and podcasts coming out uh, every week. So thank you all for, for being here and tuning in. Thank you for listening to Wedge Issues. Our theme music is Oh, Wisconsin by Loxley. Watch for the rest of our Act 10 series coming out over the next few weeks. This series was reported by Brianna Riley and Scott Gerard and produced by me, Jessica Poyan. To read more Act 10 coverage or to get in touch with us, go to captimes.com. This podcast has been brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Once again, be sure to learn more at exactsciences.com.